Welcome back to the second part of our eighth episode with Mark Keith, author of Pulling Back to Sheets. So you mentioned fear is a big deal around hotel culture and how people are not allowed to make mistakes. And some cultures are more uh, are more challenged with that idea of letting people allow make mistakes, um, which then results, if you are allowed to make mistakes, you can be more hospitable. Is that sort of the arch that you're trying to create or where what other parts come into that uh, where does where does no fear create hospital environments uh well the fear is the is the thing you've got to get rid of mm. whether the fear is generated by a a tyrannical leader or whether the fear is inherent in the culture um whatever the source of the fear the leader's job and there's many leaders in a hotel but the leader's job is to you know banish that not banish the fear, but, you know, make it disappear mm. so that there isn't fear uh, because fear doesn't generate warmth and genuine embracing, exciting hospitality. Well, that's something that is, I mean, the, the origin and why it's still prevalent in industries because it's been passed down for generations, so to speak, of of various leadership levels where once you rise above the rest, it's payback time. Now it's my turn and I can... I can take charge, right? Yes, and the hotel structure is extremely hierarchical. Um, it is is as hierarchical as the military, mm. and many of those middle-ranking leaders are the, you know, the uh, drill instructor. Yeah, you have the kitchen brigade, right? I mean, this yeah, is, um, yeah, you have the terminology, the rank and file. Yeah, so maybe the military would be better in some hotels to provide the hospitality than the actual management is, but. Mm. There's a <laughs> touchy subject. Well, there's a thought, yes. <laughs> uh, like the uh, chap who visited the Soviet hotel and was asked by the Soviet leader, I hope my people are looking after you. <laughs> and he replied, honestly, they're absolutely killing me with their hospitality. <laughs> so so the, the origin of hotels um, or hotel industry, and you go through this in the book, talking about a European background, uh, and then which came from the... Um, the, the royal, not royal, but the uh, aristocracy and the, the the gentry that had their um, staff, butlers and so forth, and uh, many movies are made about that. It, by the way, if you want to know about, if you not know what movie to watch, you read this book. You have about thirty movies that you can figure out. But then it goes on into what's probably which one is worse, the next one that came, so the American stage to Henry Fordism of uh, of running a hotel like a factory, basically, or is it the European tradition, where do you think is the... I guess you need two participating parents to make a monster. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, sometimes also a missing parent can help with that, right? Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, no, the two just the two just work together so well. To, yeah, uh, the manic cost control that produces that minibar question and everything else. You know, the hotel I was involved in in Europe... Um, this came a long time ago. Uh, they had a quite an extensive food and beverage cost control department. Mm. Uh, I think a food and beverage cost controller, an assistant food and beverage cost controller, a secretary, and, and maybe a clerk or somebody. Of F&B cost control. Of F&B cost control. How big was the hotel? It was a small hotel. And it was particularly empty in the winter. <laughs> and I pointed out to the general manager that his payroll costs for cost control exceeded his food and beverage revenue. <laughs> for about six months of the year. <laughs> um, that's the manic 
you know, insanity yeah. that we we must have a food and beverage cost control department and fulfill all the SOPs that are dictated to us by the head office. And that's the the way. What was it called the way things were always done around yeah, here. Yeah, the way we always do things. Yeah, the way we always do things. Yeah. You can't do that. We don't do that in hotels. Why is that so ingrained? This the way we've always done things. I think you're back to. I mean, it's it's complicated, obviously, but I think a big factor is the hierarchy and the hmm. the you know it's my turn to kick back and enforce the standards. It's passed on. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that the drill instructors pass on those traditions in the military, it, yeah. it's it's very similar, very parallel. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's not draw too many parallels there, but um, between military and hotels, the outcome is very different, supposedly. Although it can get a bit uh, heated behind the front desk as well. I mean, you have some level of of chaos, but you have that in any type of of uh, business at the end of the day. Now, well, um, there's many hotels that are not working because the front desk is at war with housekeeping, or the restaurant is at war with the kitchen. Those are the traditional adversarial mm. roles and everyone hates the finance department and HR <laughs> and HR yes because the only time you see him is when you get fired basically yeah, exactly. right? HR fired was actually the secret police who yeah. did the enforcing <laughs> yeah yeah um, so that whole that's the way we've always done things mm. in hotels with all those divisions we we actually call them the rooms division yeah um, we wonder why then the hotel is divisive yeah and um it, One part you also talk about is the cartel leadership. So while obviously much is ascribed to the GM uh, in terms of his or her capability in leading the hotel, it's not a one man or one woman job, right? So different hotels have different cartels, I guess. How, what have you seen in terms of cartelization of hotel leadership? Yeah, I use the word cartel. I, and I didn't have this when I started writing. Um, but as I was trying to tackle this issue, It occurred to me that it is a sort of the leadership of a hotel is is often a group of people who are not always pursuing an aligned agenda. So the cartel's made up of the ownership parties, and there may be a group there, mm. and you've got then the hotel general manager and maybe the XCOM, and then you'll have participation if it's a management company with the regional or the corporate officers. So you've got up. You can have as few as three people in those representations, where you could have as many as 12, all involved, all with an agenda, all wanting to look good and you know be the one who's made the difference and sabotage the other one they don't like. And within an ownership cartel, if it's a family, um, you know, a smart general manager will realize that they they certainly work for their brand if it's a branded management company, but they live or die by the sword of the owner. Mm. And then they have to work out who in the ownership entity wields that sword. Right. And it might not be the one who hired them. And uh, in in Asia, the prevalence of ownership families is is pretty widespread. Yeah. And that's one thing. I mean, this book is directed towards hotel owners. And as you say, the families are a particularly difficult type of owner because there's too many factions within or can be, at least within the family, and then you have generational change, and it all complicates the... Is, is that... So what do you make of the way, I mean, in in, uh, in the US or in Europe, hotels are owned by institutional owners, which just look after the corporate, the commercial success, and in Asia, it's more 
more often than not a family business, right? A family-owned business. So in the the U.S. had come up with the asset manager to give, uh, which also gets their fair mention here in this book. Um, how, how does that type of ownership difference uh, drive the culture of the hotel? Sometimes I think uh, a U.S. or Western-centric institution can be just as dysfunctional as a dysfunctional family ownership mm. uh, because you get different parties within that institution or within that family. Right. And they can mirror each other in their dysfunction or in their alignment and harmony. So I'm not sure that because it's a family or it's an institution, you've still got individuals with agendas, with egos, with you know the drive to look good and, and show off and be the alpha male. Mm. Even if they're not male, they'll want to be the alpha male. Um, it's the chauvinism that often drives that competitive yeah, arena mm. that the hotel is just almost like a, a spectator to yeah, and, and a consequence of. And you're saying that a hospitable owner will have a better performing hotel in a way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And So you know, if you're not cut out to be a hospitable person, you probably shouldn't own a hotel. Oh, absolutely. In any, in not necessarily when you're not there every day, but even as an absentee owner. You're probably not sending the right signals to your in-betweens or down the ranks. You know, there's some really great owners, hotel owners, who are not naturally hospitable, mm. but they're intelligent and cognitively aware enough to know that. Mm. And they they keep themselves away from that. And I'm thinking of two or three that have actually transformed to be warm and hospitable wow. around their hotel operations. And then when they go back to their <laughs> other main business, they are whatever they need to be in that wow. sector. But they're a, they're a rare minority that okay. have that self-awareness. But there are a few. That's a very professional mindset. Oh, yeah. yeah. And often they've been told. Uh, okay. You know, you, you, you drill down and say, where did you get this insight? And they'll tell you sometimes. They'll share that, well, you know, I had this... I had this friend, uh, I had my lawyer, or rarely, because this is asking a lot of a general manager to manage upwards like that. Mm. But there have been general managers who've been able to facilitate that kind of situation and, uh, and create a good harmony and a good warm hospitality culture, even though it wasn't naturally forthcoming. Right. Do general managers ask enough questions about their owners when they get into the job? No, no generally speaking, I mean, it's a general question. Uh, no, um, it's often a big surprise. Because one point you make is also who's the customer of the hotel, right? Well, of the brand, yes. The the owner's the primary customer. Which is not necessarily what your survey of general managers um, revealed. Or, or what you're taught at hotel school. For that matter, yeah. Yeah, yeah which are also quite complicit in this, uh, the way we've always done things, right? Oh, absolutely. They're, they're very good at that. So, yeah. so where can this change come about that uh, we stop doing the way... We've always done things. Well, what it would take would be some sort of global pandemic that would shut down the industry for a year or so. Well, let me but think I mean, if we can find far fetched. Yeah, okay. Um, I really, that's why I hesitated publishing early last year hmm. as the pandemic crept in. And then um, a couple of clients were saying, What do you think? And I said, Well, you were going to close next year for a renovation, do it this year. Hmm. You know, you, you won't lose the revenue 
maybe in the same way, you know, you're going to lose it anyway. So it's a chance for that to happen, even if you haven't done a renovation, even if you're just hanging in there, mm. but to reopen. And the industry, or let's say the marketplace, is going to demand an entirely different kind of definition of luxury. Luxury is going to be great sanitation and hygiene, demonstratively great. So um, great hotel in, um, in Austria, in Leo Gang, uh, the Mama Thresi. Uh, great. It's actually a restaurant with rooms, and um, as the service closes, last orders around ten o'clock, ten thirty. The kitchen, which is an open kitchen, they then put on a theatre of cleaning the kitchen. This is before the pandemic. Oh wow! And they have sand and bricks. They clean the solid tops, and they really scrupulously clean it, like you could go and have brain surgery in there uh, afterwards. And you know, invariably, someone like me will send them a case of beer, and then. You know, it's the best tip you can ever do in a restaurant mm. because when you go back, you know, the kitchen loves you. <laughs> um, but that kind of showmanship, showcasing the sanitation, the hygiene in the future, the highly toxic dry cleaning that is required for traditional suits and uniforms, mm. which are not done every day. So the jacket or the tie gets put in the wardrobe to incubate the virus that's got to go mm. you know that should have gone anyway but uh, this is an opportunity to not dress in hospital scrubs but dress in cottons that can take good hard washing mm. and uh, you know are not requiring lots of maintenance and look more casual a little more friendly and more warm and hospitable than the austere power dressing of yes, you know, Michael Douglas's Wall Street movie <laughs> The, uh, so that's um, how you say it. I wouldn't say the facade, but it's sort of, in a way, it's not just window dressing because it also has more profound impacts, right, yeah. on the culture. Because just becoming a hygienic hotel or doesn't necessarily mean we stop doing things the way they were done yesterday or always, right? But to be hygienic. You say it's I a think catalyst, sort of. I, this is my opinion. The customer is going to be looking for less touch points. Right. So with the technology available, it's entirely possible, I would think, to book your room online, pay your deposit online, register your payment method, get your key code online, go into the hotel, find your own hotel room, mm. go into the room, order some room service because you don't want to be in the public for whatever reason, and leave the hotel and never have a customer touch point with another human being. Now that's the extreme, but that could be an extremely luxurious hospitality experience mm. without a human being. And we've kind of seen that even before the pandemic with the customers choosing Airbnb and service apartments to get those minimalist mm. customer touch points and less of the, less of the, um, the traditional hotel way of providing service through pandering right. and sometimes pestering. Till, till management companies realize that they can save money, this would be a long way to go, I guess, because they have to hire less people, right? Or in uh, different sure areas at least. somebody worked that out <laughs> when I said less customer contact. Yes, absolutely. But that's the secret of the service department. Yep. You know, instead of 200 staff, you can have 25 staff, and they're all superstars. Mm. It's fantastic. So talking about superstars, 
and throughout the book you say not everybody in the organization will be a superstar but you need to have a certain number of them in order to deliver that excellent experience and there's been examples of hiring that is done less so out of the hotel industry but maybe more out of retail or other service uh, which, which is shocking almost right where you say through the work experience in our industry we don't get the right caliber people or talent to deliver a great experience in, in a yeah, hotel yeah absolutely how absurd it is absurd but it comes back to the hierarchy the hmm. suppression the do it this way this is the way it always is done that's the legacy of all that right and from changing the the suits the hierarchy may not go no it'll have to be all, all, all so you completely change the structure comprehensive housekeeping yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And, you know, there's a chapter on a, a recommended structure for a hotel, yeah. which is centered around someone in charge of all the customer experience, all the customer delight across all functions. Mm. From the moment they touch the hotel through the website or through the booking engine to the time they depart, that whole flow is managed by a specific Function. Does that imply you have to cross-train your F&B staff to be in the front desk? And because there seems to be a, a genuine resistance, because it's never been the way like that <laughs> to to have cross-training. Is that what you would see as being part of that as a customer touchpoint agent or executive, whatever you call, um, that you would have multiple roles throughout oh, the journey? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's, that's not been the way no, at no. all. I mean, this, you be, we had our divisions, right? Or departments where it was very... Yeah, but then you go to a little boutique resort somewhere and the guy who drives you from the airport also checks you in. Is the owner. That was my punchline. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you don't know that until about the fourth encounter. Yeah. And you say, wow, you're also bringing my room service up. He says, yeah. yeah. It happened to me, actually, in, yeah. Uh, yeah, in French Polynesia. Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. I don't see what you said then was the front office staff doing food and beverage. No, you wouldn't have front office staff or food and beverage staff. It's You'd just, have customer contact staff. Right. And they, it's not very difficult to, if you've got the social skills and the interaction and the empathy skills to deal with the customer, you can do that in any context. Fine enough, Club Med runs it like that almost, where they have their um, yeah their GMs. They call them GMs. No, no, no that's, the, that's the guest is the GM, right? The gentleman. Yeah, they have chef de village or something yes. like a tribal leader, but yes. then it's the entertainers or um, they have a name too, right? For yes. for their role, so they were quite ahead in their times, I oh, guess, yeah. for for what they did in yeah. the business model. But they, still the only one. but they did pest you to be in the theater. Yeah, well, that was part of the experience you signed up for. I think everybody knew what yes. they're what they're getting themselves into. Yeah. Obviously, maybe you did win it once, and the wrong person would never come back, right? Yeah. So, but that's that's a brand, that's a product, and yeah. an experience, right? Um, one thing you talk about also is blind spots. So, the definition of a blind spot is the the things you don't know, you don't know. I guess. Yeah, the things you, the things that sometimes all those around you know. And assume you know, yeah. and you don't know. You don't even know they're there, not alone what they are. So what's the uh, recipe to uh, to uncover blind spots? <sighs> don't be a lonely leader. Okay. Get feedback, you know, um, particularly when you go to a new culture. The first thing you need is a, a friend who's from that culture who's going to tell you when you've just made a big boo-boo. Hmm. Someone who knows the, you know, the terrain. And um, 
that that is the secret you know everybody needs somebody their wingman telling them there's a threat mm. or there's a mistake or there's you know you, you got away with it that time but let me tell you what happened right now that doesn't come if you're an imperious top-down tyrannical leader mm. my way or the highway you don't get that so you're operating as a lonely leader just f- surrounded by enormous amounts of blind spots so feedback from from uh, peers feedback from friends or could it also be within the organization up and down the hierarchy I mean, or, or yeah okay even customers yeah yeah there's being vulnerable mm. you know that's that's a great word and you know Brenny Brown's book uh, daring daring greatly so broke the broke the ice on that, mm. that, that pond and yeah dive in and and just being okay with being vulnerable because it, it does take a an immense amount of courage to to invite feedback and and not react and yep. not shut it down if it's not what you want to hear one great story to that effect was the pre-opening of the Lesotho Hilton I guess where <laughs> the, during pre-opening uh, the uh, GM took the executive uh, committee or executive leadership team to uh, learn horseback riding and I guess the fear was falling off the horse and getting hurt right yes yes And at the same time, controlling a well, it's not an organization, but a but a but a, a creature in that case, right? A horse, um, and with a nonverbal communication, taking the cues and, and getting it to do what you want to do. Yeah, um, gosh, you you bring back such such warm memories. Um, actually, I don't think this is in the book, but it might be. Um, Dennis Buchanan was the GM, hmm. and. Uh, When we arrived, each of us arrived in Nasiru Airport, small little airport, and there was a guy, either had a, a VW Combi bus or a, or a pickup truck, I can't remember. Um, we had both. So this guy, you know, wearing shorts and uh, a shirt like yours would say, uh, hey, are you Mark? I said, yeah. I'm Dennis. Oh, hi, Dennis. Yeah, I got my truck here. Let's get your stuff and get in. <laughs> And you knew the general manager's name was Dennis, but there was no way in those <laughs> days that you could equate this Dennis with Dennis, the general manager. So along the way to the, and this happened to a number of us, along the way to the hotel, Dennis would be pointing out different things in the, in the town. Oh, this is where you get your driving license. This is the post office, etc. Small little town. Hmm. And you'd say, so Dennis, what do you do around here? <laughs> and he'd say, oh, I'm the general manager. I'm your new boss. <laughs> and it was just shocking. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he had a team. Every one of us would have taken a bullet for him. We loved him. Yeah, and he loved us. Was there anyone that um, fumbled it on the drive from the? Basically, was driven right back to the airport after that first journey. Well, actually, there were a couple of people who were really stuck in their formality and their their top down and their their distance, mm. the power distance, and they they fumbled, they stumbled. Mm. They couldn't really make the adaption. This is going back almost 40 years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was pioneering stuff. But Dennis, you know, an interesting Australian um, and uh, spent a lot of time in Canada running hotels. But Dennis was also a boxer mm. and a keen rugby fan. And he once did a, a management outing to go and watch the... Um, British Lions play the Orange Free State at rugby in Bloemfontein. That was his idea of a, <laughs> a strategy meeting. <laughs> strategy meeting. 
Yeah, well, strategy and rugby are still uh, two things for me that don't necessarily go together. I haven't really figured that out yet entirely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so um, we do have um, our advice section in this podcast. So a question to you, shifting gears a little bit. Um, People are looking to become an entrepreneur uh, that you have been in your career, right, here and there. Uh, when you ran executive search here in Asia, I guess, um, or a creator as writing a book, what would you tell somebody that's looking to set out on their own and be a creator or a writer? You do, do give some good questions, Dan. Um, I'm going to use another motorcycling or mountain biking analogy. Um, I don't know if you've ever spent any time playing a video game of motorcycle racing. Okay. It's pretty fun for a little while. And then you find that, well, I, I found this, and the same with video games of mountain biking. Then I found that there was something missing. And it took me a while to understand what was missing. There was no risk. Um, I'm a grandparent, and grandparenting is a bit the same. You're, you're divorced from the consequences <laughs> of the action. So... Being an entrepreneur is like getting on a mountain bike or a motorcycle and there's serious consequences if your risk management is not, not up to what is required. Mm. Um, so the world moves in a direction towards um, health and safety, which is removing a lot of the risk management competencies that you and I would have got growing up. Mm. And that's a worry for the future generations. Um, and you saw uh, just down behind my house the the makeshift um, extreme mo- mountain bike sort of uh, course that's there. So the kids in our neighborhood are all going out there on their time off. Um, with helmets or no helmets? Ooh. Ooh. For disclosure, we say with helmets. <laughs> always with full. <clears throat> always with always safety, always, yeah. Full helmets. Okay. Yes. So I never had a helmet on a bicycle until we rode together down the hills where it's advisable to have a yes, helmet. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, well, that's risk management. Mm. You know, if you if you do ride without a helmet, you're going to either you know, not survive or you're going to manage the risk adequately. Yeah. And you adjust. I mean, I, occasionally I ride without a helmet on a mountain bike if I'm going down to the shops, mm. but I don't ride the same as I would if I had a helmet or not consciously. Um, so this risk management assessment, this... Um, it's cost-benefit analysis as well. All of these come into it. And for the question you've asked, the difference between a video game and the real thing is rather like the difference between being an entrepreneur and working in the, the false security of a salaried job. And we've seen in this last 12 months in the pandemic mm. how that security is false. Um, and, uh, you know, you could use lots of analogies. The difference between a, a wild fox and a domesticated puppy. Right. Um, but I, I, I don't want to sound vainglorious, but those of us who have gone off on our own and, and dared to be vulnerable and dared to take the risk, we've had an experience of life which... It's quite extraordinary. Well, and if you take haven't an done MBA it, for that, right? Pardon? Others might take an MBA for it or a other form of education. 
Yeah, but I, I don't know if you can. It's not the same. I'm not saying it's the same, but yeah, uh, yeah you learn a lot. Yeah, yeah, you learn a lot. But um, you know, the the great German-born psychologist Kurt Lewin always said, um, "Without experience, no explanation is possible. Mm. With experience, no explanation is necessary." And uh, the experience of doing something on your own, you know, my son is entrepreneur, he runs a rest- owns and runs a restaurant, um, and he went from a, a safe job as a physiotherapist and jumped into that unknown. Mm. Speaking of which, oh. Haven. Haven. His new restaurant opens next month in North Point, Haven. Little Cove Espresso is into its fifth year, I think, in Saigon. Okay. One real quick second. I've got a... Every entrepreneur needs a plug. (laughs) Oh, I didn't didn't resync it. Your your question, if I can just carry on with that. Um, Being an entrepreneur doesn't mean you have to start your own business or risk all your savings or anything it's it is about the risk and if you're an employee a general manager front desk employee you know any position in an in employment in a company situation managing upwards saying to your boss or your owner um, the things they need to hear to improve the outcomes you're delivering is entrepreneurial Mm. because it's risky. And you might be losing your job in the wrong environment doing that. But those who don't do that will forever hold their manhood cheap, to put it crudely, that you've got to take a stand in life. And uh, no matter what you're doing, so it's not so much just entrepreneurial, it is the the daring Mm. to be vulnerable, the daring to maybe lose everything. Intrepid. Uh, yeah. And I guess that's not for everyone. That mm. doesn't, doesn't work for everybody. But um, yeah, <clears throat> if, if, you, if you've got a burning grievance or a burning persistent complaint, ah, if you don't resolve that, mm. it will eat you alive inside. It will affect your health and well-being. Yeah. And likewise, if you voice your concerns and they're not heard, then it's probably time to move on, right? If you're, if the organization you're working for doesn't heed your grievances or concerns, then you need to ask yourself if that's the place that you will be happy, right? And The skill set of voicing your concerns in such a way that gets the action you require hmm. is leadership because you're influencing people over whom you have no power or authority. That is the essence of leadership. Mm. And when we talk about natural leaders, it's people who can do that naturally. You know, in a crisis, in an emergency, someone say, takes charge. Um, but that's a skill set to, to practice and develop. Um, every child has that. Every child, when something goes wrong, attempts to do that. And depending how that works out for them, it either shuts them down or encourages them to do it more. Mm. But it's, it's an essential skill for being human. Very good. So is that, you think, as, uh, as the world moves on after COVID, that K-12 
can everybody be a leader? Is that the perfect world where everybody has that trait of, uh, of, of, as you say, being outgoing and, and voicing their grievances and, and looking for improvements? Or is that the utopian misery that would come about us? I mean, how far can this go? Oh, I think, you know, we're back to the little microcosm, that social construct, which is a hotel. Hmm. You can absolutely have a hotel where everybody is a leader. Not competing leaders. They're all aligned. They're mm. all thriving and aiming for the same outcomes. But every one of them takes a stand and has the courage to do whatever it takes to make it move forward. Right. And it's a bit like um, you could do that within a hotel. Whether that will ever spread to an entire society, who knows. But it starts small. And you see companies like that. You know, I, I remember going to... Lausanne Hotel School, where you, you studied, I believe. Yeah. Uh, this was 20 years ago. And I said, um, if you, I said to the students, if you could choose the dream employer, any employer at all, any employer, when you leave school, who would you want to work for? Hmm. And this whole group of students, in those days it was, I think it was Apple, Sony, <laughs> <laughs> who didn't have hotels. Yeah. Um, and I went, oh my goodness, this is really scary. No one's put a hotel company down. They said, well, you said it was the dream job. Wow. <laughs> well, it's just fact that uh, for many of the leading hotel schools, only about half end up in the industry, right? Yeah. And the rest um, spreads away with all these things to other industries. <laughs> <and> <laughs> makes them miserable. Okay, so uh, in terms of the next 10 years, how hopeful are you that... Um, some of the recommendations in the book, not because of your book necessarily, but obviously because a lot of people will read it. If you would have to take a guess out of, let's say there's 100 recommendations in here, how many do you think there would be coming about? Or what else is your expectation for an industry for the next 10 years? Because of what's happened this year, and which is continuing to unfold this year, um, I'm more hopeful than I would have been before the pandemic. Because I think it would have been almost impossible to to shift an industry i was hopeful if you know this is pre-pandemic if i published them which i almost did had yeah. i got one of those publishing houses to you know would have run it through yeah. i would have run it through and the book would be sitting on a shelf useless because it didn't address the opportunity that the pandemic has presented so the my optimism has gone up tremendously because the hotels that don't adapt will not survive mm. it's going to be a very cruel world out there and we've seen it already. Many have, have folded. Um, this is really a, 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 the essence of human evolution and adaption and overcoming and persevering. Mm. Um, those that don't adapt and transform, I don't think anyone wants, I'm talking the marketplace, yep. I don't think anyone's craving to go back to what it was. Mm. Some will for nostalgic, but in a different way. And uh, we still see some of those uh, dinosaurs of the industry around pre-COVID and maybe some will hang on and, and make it through. But uh, let's hope that the change is there for the better. Uh, and that's not peculiar to the hotel industry. We see that in all mm. forms of life, uh, in politicians. Uh, you know, you, Particular. Um, there's hardly a day goes by that you don't see a dinosaur politician making some remark that is you know, perfect for 1980 
not perfect for 2021. Yeah, you could talk about the Olympic Games leadership too, but uh, let's not go there. <laughs> On that note, uh, this is about all the time we have. Thank you all for tuning in again to uh, Made in Asia, the podcast uh, about creators and entrepreneurs in Asia. Uh, this was with Mark Keith, author of Pulling Back the Sheets, the Hotel Owners and Managers Operating and Repair Manual. A tome that's available on Amazon only, I guess. Yeah. yeah, On Amazon, uh, so check it out there. The link will be down below in the, uh, in the description and on the blog. And um, you can find us, as always, on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Our website, made-in.asia. Thank you, Mark. Been a pleasure out here. Some Thank sunshine. And uh, hope you tune in for the next episode. Thank you, Dan. Thanks. Real pleasure. Cheers. This is the end of our second part of our eighth episode with Mark Heath, author of Pulling Back to Sheets. Thank you for listening. Do find us on our website, made-in.asia, or check us out on our YouTube page. Stay tuned for updates on our next episode. The best way to do that is through our Instagram, Made in Asia, the podcast.